people say the market's struggling, the market's in decline. They're absolutely right. But when we're analyzing our aggregate data, it's showing that the transactions aren't actually slipping as much as the raw dollar count. So customers are still going back as almost as frequently as they used to. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, John Yang, CEO of Trees. John, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to John. Really excited to learn about trees. Um, you know, really excited for the West Coast over here. I guess it's fair to ask, John, your location for the record, please. Uh, in Northern California, uh, Oakland specifically, sunshine out there. Just got through uh, a storm, but it was just a little bit of rain, a little bit of wind. Um, we survived. And That's I'm awesome. hopeful that there'll be some East Coast conversations today because obviously... <laughs> Uh, New York is always in the news, and it, it's important for us to try to spin it always to be East Coast based. So, John, before we dive in, it'd be great to get a little background about you for our listeners. Sure, CEO and founder of Trees. You know, Trees is the premier point of sale software solution for cannabis retailers. Uh, started this a little over six years ago. Now, uh, we expanded quite a bit over the last six years. We're now in fifteen different markets. Uh, particularly strong in California, Arizona, but we've migrated eastward into Michigan, into Jersey, into Massachusetts, and hopefully soon into New York. Perfect. So I'd want to stay with those early days with building trees. Obviously, in those six years, a lot probably has changed. What was the early origin of the idea? What sparked you to kind of come into the cannabis and build trees? Yeah, so um, I'm always a a problem solver, solutioning type of mentality. My personal background actually didn't come from one of uh, cannabis, right? It's more of... Uh, using some technology to solve for SMB problems. Uh, Those were in my teen years, uh, growing up in a very small town called Reno, Nevada. Uh, Father owned a computer shop. You know, used to be able to buy a personal computing for um, $4,000. And then soon you have to figure out, well, what do you do with that box that just cost me $4,000? Quickly, I learned that, oh, wow, you could do a lot for these small businesses, right? For uh, For the lawyers, for the dentist offices, Connectivity, displacing pen and paper processes. Uh, it was actually at the um, you know around the mid nineties uh, where internet, emailing, networking all came to be. So I just got to see how much technology could solve uh, pain points, and then transitioned my career into more of the consulting variety, doing the same but doing it for Fortune five hundred companies. So I had the luxury of understanding technology for SMB, technology for more of the dinosaurs in the Fortune five hundred space, uh, and you know, come full circle for the cannabis market where it's emerging. It's largely SMB trying to grow into the Fortune 500s into the future, but without purpose-built software. So luckily, uh, ran into my co-founder who does come from the cannabis space, a vertical operator doing it for almost two decades, uh, and met him at his very busy dispensary here in Northern California, Hayward to be specific. At that time, it was, you know, how do you transact more uh, tickets within a four 500 square foot retail space. You were tapped out because you didn't have technology. You know, pen and paper can only take you so far. Um, so just the lure of solving for entire industry, solving from the ground up, had not having a lot of competitors and doing it with a purpose-built software. Here we are on this on the show. What was your biggest hesitation jumping into cannabis? I mean, I know it's a, a non-plant touching business, but it, it still is cannabis, correct? 
Yeah, no one's ever. Um, because every everywhere else, you're going to run into uh, competitors, um, modes, and and just a lot of dinosaurs that's already in place. Yeah. In cannabis, you didn't have that, right? Like in the point of sale, my first question when I was waiting in the lobby trying to meet my co-founder is, why aren't you guys using uh, Clover? Why aren't you guys using Square? What's going on? Um, but you have to understand, traditional point of sale software, uh, really, it's a receipt printer, but a payment processor. If there's no payments in the cannabis space, there is no incentive for these bigger companies to um, solution for the uniqueness and the challenges of the cannabis space. So I saw that as a that's a lot of uh, opportunity to create and create our own moats before uh, the industry is big enough for and before there's federal legalization for the other companies to truly care. I think one of the areas that I don't think gets kind of exemplified enough is the ability for problem solving. And I think kind of coming from that idea, exactly like you said, is, is critically important, especially in cannabis. Because unfortunately, like you were saying, there are issues all around the past. So when you're getting started with trees and then where we are today, you know, where did we deviate and what ideas kind of took us from the origin of the idea to, to where we are today? Sure. The origin of the idea is, you know, we were able to use software to transform the same square footage limitation of that first shop of ours, my co-founder's shop, uh, from 400 tickets a day to at the peak 1,200 tickets a day. The only difference, right, is software. Um, so early years was a growth issue. How do I get more customers in? I have the uh, bandwidth. I have the customer account. You know, I have some geographic advantage. There wasn't as much uh, or many competition. So reducing just clicks, right? Like workflow, workflow, workflow. If I could get a customer in with two clicks versus one click versus 10 clicks and apply that across my inventory management, apply that across online, apply that across all areas of the business, it was a growth issue, it was a volume issue, it was a speed issue. So those were the early years. Uh, the difference these days is, unfortunately, many, especially in the West Coast, many operators are not worrying about growth and top line. They're worrying about bottom line, as they should. You know, From day one of starting a business, you need to worry about the bottom line. You need to worry actually about loss prevention, more about efficiency, right? Uh, maybe these days, the only access to capital is through your own bottom line. Uh, and maybe just forgot about that because reaching profitability is really difficult, especially with the tax issues and the regulatory issues. But some are able to achieve it. Um, and that's just good business practices. And luckily, once we've solved the growth issues and the workflow issues in the early days, our mindset was always about data. Our mindset was always about how do we then also use the data to influence that bottom line impact. So with the data, how are uh, some of the operators utilizing that data to influence their bottom line? Could you kind of walk yeah, us through some of those? For, first and foremost, it's about buying the right SKU assortment, right? Like early years, just buy everything you can and just have 500, 1,000 SKUs. Sometimes you still see it, right? Kevin, like you go to into a dispensary, you're like, wow, that's a lot of menu. That's a lot of items. What? Walk me through all of it. it. Might take the whole day to walk you through it all. Now you don't no longer have the cash to buy all that, right? Uh, even though some of the items might be on on terms, um, having too much skew results in a lot of uh, theft, a lot of loss, a lot of spoil, uh, you know, just spoilage, um, and it results in just confusing decision making for a lot of the not only your employees but also to your uh, consumers. So using data to inform what to buy, when to buy, the right assortment, reducing that skew count. Some of the best operators we're seeing that actually has a positive bottom, bottom line impact are carrying only about 200 SKUs. I mean, that might be the right amount depending on how big of an operation and how big your retail square footage is. So that's one area. Uh, another area and a big area is loss prevention. You know, I was just at 
I was just chasing a prospect, a very large prospect um, that's over three, 30, 40 stores. My first question on the discovery call is, you know, what's top of mind? And the top of mind is like, if I could reduce a percent in loss prevention and through theft, through just shrinkage, through all that, like I would be making a profit. And that's big, right? And everybody should think about that because this is still traditional retail. And you may not assume so, but you're probably losing around 5 to 10% of your top line just through a lot of what's going on behind the scenes that you're not aware of. So understanding, you know, are you losing dollars because people are just taking advantage of adjusting reward points? Are they taking advantage of not doing the right count at the back of house? Um, and, and just tying that to the SKU conversation earlier, how long does it take to count you know, a thousand different SKUs? Probably too long. You're probably going months before you're doing a full cycle count. Right, but making sure you have the right practices in in doing your SKU counts uh, in accounting in general and reducing that SKU, it's all ties it together in helping with the loss prevention. What percentage of operators are using data to make, let's say, informed decision, and what percentage of operators have no idea and are not using any sorts of data, just from a generalization standpoint? I think a hundred percent would claim that they use data. Right, obviously the data is there, like in some <laughs> some shape or form, it's there. And if you poll or survey or ask anybody that's employed, like, are you using data? And the answer is no. Like, their job is at risk, right? So, generally, it's a hundred percent. But how are they using it? How tough is it to use it? Those are the key critical uh, questions to to kind of drill into because data can just take you into a lot of different pigeonholes, right? I would have to guess that you know only twenty percent typical 20, uh, 80 rule, but only twenty percent using it correctly, and and those rely on a, uh, on somewhat of a a good team to put it together because just putting things together takes a lot of time. And that's what Trees really aims to, to solve, right? Like we know the pain points, we collect all the granular data across all the workflow pain points that we addressed in our early years. Now, how do we present it in a, a really just simplified manner? And our goal for our data products is to empower every stakeholder. And that's really important, right? If I say 20% I'm using it, it's because 80% are being told what to do with it thereafter. And that's not going to fly, right? You're not empowering everybody that makes an impact into their bottom line. That buttender makes an impact to their bottom line. If their goal is AOB and their goal is speed and transaction time, they need to know about it. They need to know what the goalpost is. They need to know every day they start to shift where they are at, how far away are they from the goalpost, and ultimately how they help the company achieve its bottom line goals, right? And a lot of times that's missing. So when you guys onboard uh, clientele, um, is there like a whole education period in terms of like, this is how you guys want to use this data or do you kind of like let them kind of sink or, or swim, if you will, and then kind of work with them? How's that process work? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question because it's also our maturation. In the early years, yeah. it's here. Have it, present it, do something with it, hopefully, right? Because we're not... Ultimately, we're not a consulting agency. And there yeah. are some consultants that we work with that will take it a step further. Uh, but these days, going back to empower every stakeholder, our idea is let's just drop it into every square footage on the digital screen possible. So if you're a butt tender, you start your shift. Here's the presentation. You could tweak it as management, right? As a GM, as uh, as corporate, to what a butt tender should see, what a receptionist should see, what an inventory manager should, should see. But you log into trees. This is what you need to do. This is where you're at. You are at today. This is where the company or the store is at today. And how do you, through by the end of your shift, impact that? Um, and so we're trying to simplify. Uh, we're trying to simplify what we're showing, but also empower every stakeholder uh, by just presenting it to them from from the moment they log in. 
that's so powerful, right? Because the idea of data is so like intoxicating. You, you can figure out so much, but if you don't know how to leverage that for actionable insights, it can almost be a distraction. It can take you down the wrong path. So having the ability to open up a dashboard and have, let's say, key metrics that everyone can be aligned with is such a critical starting ground for so many that they can take the right steps forward so that it's an easy success metric so they understand exactly where they need to go. You know, that's exactly right, Brian. You know, like it's interesting. People say the market's struggling, the market's in decline. They're absolutely right. But when we're analyzing our aggregate data, it's showing that the transactions aren't actually slipping as much as the raw dollar count. So customers are still going back as almost as frequently as they used to. Um, but what they're not doing is buying as high of an average order value or buying as much, or maybe that's through discount, maybe that's through some other incentives. But right now, all the retail operators are wanting to make sure that the AOV is the metric that a button cares about. You know, what is the average? What is their average in comparison to the shop? And where could they, you know, elevate that throughout the course of, of their shifts? Yeah, and that can lead to really critical, let's say, end and purchasing decisions at the end, maybe offering like a, a BOGO buy one, get one free offer on top in order to push people over that average order volume because they know that number in their mind they're looking to shoot for. And as they get kind of get close, they can use kind of incentives and tricks in order to achieve that. Without that number, it's purely a guessing game, right? Kellen could be pushing for $60, I could be pushing for $120, but we really need to know exactly where that number is. Precisely, precisely. And simplifying, maybe that's the only metric that matters to them, right? Throwing 10 or 15 metrics, how do I impact all that? Right. And then one person can go to the right while the other person go to the left. And ultimately, no one's going in their correct decision for management. You got it. How long did it take you guys to get to that simplicity from a maturity perspective? That's a great question. I would say within the last two years, um, it's really where we took that journey. Like we all, we've always simplified the workload, the clicks, yeah. the clicks, you know, make it ease of use. Like you could pull someone on the streets and use a tree system and it would take maybe five, 10 minutes and just make it intuitive. So did a good job at that. What we didn't do a good job is making sure that data also flew, um, you know, or, or also like uh, was it as easy to use as the rest of the software. So um, over the last two years, we really invested heavily into our data products. Um, we showed uh, our new retail analytics that we released at MJ Biz in November um, last year. We're rolling that out as we speak through uh, all of our customer base, and I think it's going to make a, a huge impact. Do you think there's any correlation between training and kind of getting a bud tender up to speed and understanding that there's certain, let's say, one or two metrics early on in their career that you can kind of focus on to help them kind of get acclimated to the industry? Yeah, I think training largely is, you know, SOP driven that meets certain corporate needs or uh, store needs, right? We, we as a software provider just needs to make it as dumb, simple as possible, but also make it uh, just moldable towards the various goals and, and SOPs that a, a particular org might have. Um, so it's less training on the tree software. It's more training on how do you make an impact to, to the company. Do those same kind of changes need to be applied as you go from state to state based on the different state regulations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great call out. Yeah, some, sometimes you can't do that BOGO if you're just going and exceeding your purchase limits. So there are nuances across different states. Um, and that's part of the pain, but also part of the joy of creating this software. Uh, we're <laughs> in different markets. You know, the investors ask, why aren't you in every market? It's really hard, right? To get it right, um, we, it takes surgical uh, precision. It takes a lot of just late nights to to make sure that we get every state's regulations right, every city's regulations right, right. And then at the start of every year, we're recording this in January. We're always surprised by something new that starts, you know, on the first of January for a particular state. 
oh, the the joys and the funs of cannabis. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, and you don't get the phone calls on the, on the first because, you know, many owners are busy. You get the phone calls the second week or third week. of like, oh, wow, there's that change. Is it in the system yet? Have we reacted yet? So we talked about average order volume being a key metric. Does that vary state by state? And is that location by location? How, how specific and how, let's say, wider can these data analytics get? It certainly does uh, vary state by state. In New York, uh, I think I read that the uh, half a gram vape was going for $95 or something like something crazy like that. Right? Only one store, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. But it was still buying that. Uh, maybe it's a novelty item. And then you drive, what, three hours or whatever hours it takes to get to mass and, you know, the price has crashed in half. Um, so it's going to vary state by state. I think, obviously, like, gas prices vary state by state, right? Just consumer wallets vary state by state. So, yes, it's absolutely going to be different. Are there purchasing trends, too, that you can kind of identify between it saying that if someone buys, let's call it a, a WANA gummy, that they sometimes buy a card also? Is there any sort of correlation between different products that your team can identify? Or is that more of just kind of an individual by person basis? Yeah, we can identify it, but I think it's more about empowering the procurement officers um, to make those decisions. Uh, certainly, there's trends of certain brands resonating with consumers. I think brands, especially in the West Coast, is really starting to resonate. Like going to buy Wana, Wild, etc. Like those are known um, and proven brands that resonate with consumers, and you see it in the repeatability of of when they come back. They might explore and take about 20 or 25% of the wallet share to start to explore other uh, uh, maybe complementary types of brands. But they're still sticking. A lot of times they're sticking to what they trust. Do you see certain types of companies being more interested in the data analytics, like the bigger companies or is it smaller ones or it's kind of a mixed bag of all? Uh, big companies um, definitely are uh, curious and and have invested a lot of time and money into into their data. Many of those have their own data teams to consume it because they also have to tie... You know, like for us, we want to make sure out of the box we have everything the retail team and the retail management team has. Um, but the larger companies are vertical, right? So they may take what we have in our retail platform and compile it with the vertical side or other data sources. Um, so they do a lot with it. On the smaller, once it's smaller side, that's relative, right? Some of these SMBs are doing very high volume. It's about more about the culture within there. Um, if you're still getting away in, in, in certain markets, you can with the growth side, with just dollars coming in, you may care less about that bottom line still, depending on the markets you're in. But I think increasingly, even the smaller teams are asking us about, you know, what could we do more uh, with your software? Uh, do, with the bigger companies, do you guys integrate your data into like their ERP systems as well? Yeah. So we, we also released the integration hub. So ERP is a big one, like whether it's going to Odoo, SAP, et cetera. Yeah. You have to connect to, you know, to connect on several fronts. You have to connect to the financial side uh, for reporting purposes, but also, you know, down uh, up to the supply chain. Like what do you have in the warehouse? Right. And, you know, what's the cost profile? What's the tax? What's the, uh, the product content? Let's, let's make sure we streamline down to uh, all the retail shops. Cause typically, if you have a, a good ERP, you're probably operating more than a single store. You're probably yeah. operating multiple stores and possibly multiple markets. You want to make sure you have that visibility across all your uh, entities. Has that proven to be like additionally or harder than it originally thought when kind of building that out? Because obviously you're pushing forward and then you need to connect in various applications. And then there's probably layered with different challenges from state by state. That can't be an easy solution as you're kind of scaling that up. Industry in and of itself isn't easy. Um, we always have <laughs> point of sale as the center of value chain, right? The good thing about the point of sale is there's no sale that unlocks until it's reported within the point of sale, whether it's online, whether it's in store, whether it's wherever. Um, and all of that activity that happens in the supply side that tends to be within the ERP or the MRPs, 
that's great. But that's creating a lot of product. That's putting a lot of resource and, and dollars into it. It still has to unlock in terms of sales, right? So we've always thought that being that center of the value chain, being that node that connects all uh, kind of counterparties and entities within the space, you know, we hold a lot of power, but we also hold a lot of responsibility to make sure that the data flows up and down. Yeah, and especially being accuracy, right? Because if your team is making decisions based on that data, it has to be accurate and valuable. If not, it'll lead to other people making, let's say, incorrect decisions, which is one of the biggest challenges with data is that if you aren't leveraging it correctly, you're, you're necessarily could be using it to arm yourself. It has to be clean. So where, where's our focus this year? Um, our focus this year is just cleaning that data up, right? How do we make sure the workflows impact cleanliness of the data, uh, de-duping um, as much as possible? Uh, because a lot of times, you know, where do most people spend their time with data? It's cleaning it up before they're able to uh, use it or report it. What's one of the biggest hindrances of not being in all the states? Like, what what's the biggest obstacle? Is it different state by state challenges to get into all of them, or is there something different? That's right. I mean, a hindrance for us as a company, it's, you know, can we tackle and have all those MSO type of conversations? I think now that we're in 15 states, there's enough coverage um, to have to be, uh, to resonate with those MSOs uh, because we're proving it in select states and soon enough in the next few years, we'll be in all the states that matter to them as, as well. Uh, but I think the advantage of not being in all the states is you're not waking up to fires across every state, right? And doing it right, having focus, having precision, um, that's that's our claim to fame. Like getting California right out of the gates took a lot, took many years, but uh, some of the largest volume operators, some of the best brands, some of the most sophisticated type of nuances, we figured it out. And so when we take that and explore uh, a New York or a New Jersey or wherever, we have solid foundations to hopefully um, reduce the amount of effort it takes to open up yet another market. Do you guys get pushback from some of the MSOs that want you to kind of take the ride with them? They're like, hey, we're going to Maryland. We use your software in Arizona. Can you please get into Maryland? Is that some pushback that you guys struggle with? For sure. We used to, for sure. And that's why we raised the capital round that we did. Um, so we raised $51 million Series C last year in the last eight. Congratulations. Months. Thank you. Thank you. Very <laughs> fortuitous timing. Um, no, right. <laughs> very, very um, and we take it to heart. And, and you know, where, where do we spend that money? We spend it into R&D. Uh, first and foremost, because um, we know we need to get it to across all these markets, and all these markets are going to have to pay, and I'm going to have to address them. And in every market, we have to have the right support structure. You know, we're still one of the few that offers 24/7 support because that's important, right? Like getting something out there day one, you're gonna, you're going to have fires, you're going to have issues, and you you need to depend on someone you can call at any hours of the night. And certain markets are operating in 24-hour fashion, right? In Nevada, for example. So um, that takes resourcing, that takes commitment. Um, but you know, luckily, we raise around and we're putting that uh, that resourcing across every state. That's an under-recognized problem. I didn't even think about that, Kellen, because you're right. If John has a, a very big MSO partner who's scaling extremely quickly and they're dependent on your software, their expectations are that you're going to scale with them as fast as they need. Because if they are in Maryland, they're going to be like, hey, John, like, we want to use tree software. And you're like, well, just like we're going to Maryland. <laughs> That's right. So on the website I read, we build fast and listen closely because our success is tied to yours. Why is that critical? And what does that mean to you? We just, again, hold a lot of responsibilities, right? Like I, I, I joke a bit about getting phone calls second or third week of January about things that change, but we have to pay attention to keep up to speed well ahead of that. Because if you tell Point of Sale or any software company that there's things that need to change and it has to change tomorrow... Inevitably, the answer is no, because if we want to do it right, um, it's, it's going to take more than 24 hours of turnaround. Um, but we also understand, even from our you know, foundational days, early 
in the early years, uh, we had to listen to the customers. Our, our, with the, the one main advantage of Trees is we just have a singular focus on uh, our customer, and that's the retailer. We don't listen to the suppliers. We don't listen to anybody else. We're not multi-tracked. We're just the great point of sale that serves our retailers. And if, if we do that well, then we also need to listen intently to our customers and their needs across markets, across operator types, and be as fast as we can to, to their needs um, within the software. It's very smart. It's easily to be, get distracted and by listening to some of these other vendors and take you on the path that might not be as valuable to your customers and putting the resources exactly where you need. So you were talking about being ahead of curves. How do you do that? How, in an industry that changes as fast as ours, how do you stay up to date on those initiatives? And how do you prioritize the resources in order to put out the most pressing fire when one occurs quickly? Uh, also through your customers, Brian. Right? To have the right customer types, the anchor type of customers, the ones that want to give the feedback because they know you listen and you're fast to, to the responses to, and to their needs, they're going to feed you more because they're at the ground level. We're not. right? The only way we can get a uh, close enough pulse to the industry to the changes is through our customers. Um, you know, we definitely spend time with consultants. We definitely spend time with the states. We definitely spend time with the traceability systems like Metric and BioTrack. That's great, but a lot of the intel there typically is a little too late. Um, and many of our customers are actually lobbying and fighting the good fight to influence some of those decisions that may come six or twelve months later. And so, staying engaged there is the only way we have chance. So it's a, a collaborative kind of relationship that you have with your clients. You, you're, they're feeding you guys information on regulatory things and kind of what's happening boots on the ground. And then you guys, are you guys feeding them information as far as the data that you're collecting in terms of trends and, and those kind of things and kind of telling them, hey, you want to look at this, this part of the data and, and this? Can you kind of talk us through some of that uh, aspect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we want to have a, a very robust conversation. Again, we're not consultants, but we yeah. have a lot of visibility to different workflows, different operations, different trends. We want to have and empower our customer success org to have those type of dialogues with our customers. And sometimes it's within our product org, the product managers, right, the product marketers that's having those conversations with our customers. It's a good balance of conversation. If you have needs, we have visibility. We might have some thoughts as well. Ultimately, if we want to influence the software, let's be good partners together and get more customers on board to talk to each other. I think that's another trend that you're seeing here, that at least that we're seeing here, is when market conditions are tough, um, resellers are dropping their egos. They're actually wanting to collaborate more on, on the various uh, uh, you know, variety of topics. Um, software may be one of them, but generally influenced by uh, some regulatory needs or changes. Did the cashless ATM crackdown hurt, change, alter your business at all? Um, no, because you know, on the payment side, what we're doing is we're pretty particular about the processors and partners we work with. It, while we have a very open ecosystem of integrations, I think that's more so for ERP systems, loyalty, et cetera. But when it comes to payments, especially in our space, many have come, more have, have just died out, right? And cashless ATM is a category uh, that's finicky, that's been finicky. Um, and you know, what, we do, what do we do there? We want to make sure that we have good backup solutions that you could cut over quickly, whether it's a different cashless ATM provider, but more so maybe just a different processor type altogether, like PIN-debit, ACH, et cetera. We just want to make sure and understand that these fires will happen. Every single morning, I might wake up to another outage of sorts uh, on the payment side. And, and hopefully, as easy as a flip of a switch, the resellers are still transacting on an alternative solution. So with the team you guys have, that you ton of different opportunities that you could kind of uh, embark on. How hard has it been to just kind of stay laser focused? Yeah, uh, it's within the lens of our retailers that we're able to focus, right? Like early right. years... 
you have to understand the TAM, the total addressable market is small for any uh, software vendor in this space. So it's very easy to chase. Like I got data stream revenue there. I got payments. I got point of sale. Yeah. Supply chain. Then I got loyalty. It's like a lot I of shiny objects. <laughs> right? I do it all. And yes, absolutely right. We we had to learn that lesson too. Now that we tackled all of that, but you can't chase it all. But if you chase everything at a surface level to ten percent degree of need, what does that actually serve, and who does that actually serve? Right. And typically, then you get into a building a house of cards that collapse pretty quickly when times are tougher. Um, so we've learned those lessons early, early on. And we said, we're, you know, we're, what's the exact lesson we learned? Being a C to sale is not easy. We attempted it. It doesn't generate the value, certainly doesn't generate the value and gives us the pace that we need to deliver for our retailers. And we course corrected. We said, being a point of sale is the absolute need. Let's just laser focus on our retailers and think that's paying dividends over the last few years. Was that a hard uh, adjustment to make at that time? For any entrepreneur that thinks they could do it all, absolutely. What's one feature request you get a lot, but you'll never build? <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, sending text messages. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Um, <laughs> we do my get that. favorite though <laughs> we do get that a lot you know what it is though like when i look at my phone I, and i you know i just shop uh and just kind of just be a good consumer um and just figure out like what, what we could do better on the software side you know i sign up for all i see a QR code i scan i see something i can sign up i sign up so i wake up to a lot of spam and all these text text messages does it really drive that much that much repeatability? Because it looks and reads just as spam. And right now the struggle is if I sign up for something, it may take hours, sometimes even days delayed for I actually get that message, right? Because just routing and all the carrier issues with our space, just something that you know we're not experts in. We'll never be experts in, and hopefully we have some good loyalty partners, CRM partners, or just text messaging partners that can fill those gaps. I never want to get text message with promos ever. Like that would all just the time. Be the most. All the time. Do you get those now, Kellen? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. If I go to a new dispensary, they like ask you for your cell phone number and like build you like a little frequent shopper profile. And like yeah. I walk out of the store, and ten minutes later, I get a text message like, "Oh, here's the deal, ten percent off." And I was like, "I'm literally just visiting here. I'm never going back to that store." It's frustrating. I, I really am not a big fan of the text message thing. That's why I laughed. <laughs> John, what's one factor statistic building in the cannabis industry that most would not? <laughs> tax rates is, is super high. If you add them all the tax rates, it goes up to 80%. I, mean, I don't know how shocking that is to, to, to the trio here on the call, but I think that would be shocking if some, no one ventured into the cannabis space. Yeah. That jumps at me as a, as a stat. Yeah, I mean, those are the important ones to hear because sometimes people listen to this podcast not inside the cannabis industry and they're they're kind of shocked to hear, let's say, that there's there's caps on how much you can spend at a dispensary, that there's all these various state-by-state challenges. And hearing that information, I think, sometimes is, is very powerful, even though we take it as common knowledge. I think other people are like shocked to hear that. And, and just the way, like, if we say it's, uh, you know, simplified to say it's 50% rough tax, the breakout of it, the compounding of it, then to go through all the audits to make sure that the you know the states are getting their money money, it's a lot to unpack within just a, a very large tax rate. What's the future roadmap for trees? Uh, as I as I said earlier, how do we further reduce uh, the labor um, needs on on the hour side, on just uh, the employee side? You know, get back to some of our roots on the workflow, right? Like if we can impact the industry today, it's it's reducing labor, it's reducing hours, reducing manual inputs, uh, having even cleaner data. Now that we've uh, really figured out, honed in now, how to simplify it, to empower every stakeholder, there's still that element of cleanliness of the data. 
And that can only be impacted by automating some of the workflows before it becomes a report, before it becomes a dashboard. Does the automation, do you think that that is going to include like more RFID chips and that kind of stuff in products in order to like decrease, to automate the inventory and those kind of aspects associated with it? It actually could, right? We're talking to some prospects that's still investing in the RFID. Um, the biggest issue with metric is they have an RFID and no one uses it. Those yeah, tags, the tags are just a barcode, just a nuance, but even uh, the opportunity to work with metric together to, to figure out how do we really reduce the, the needs to relabel is something is some, some, sometimes going to eliminate like millions of dollars of pain within a given market. When you got started in the cannabis journey, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? We definitely got right on on the workflow, definitely just affecting the consumer journey from start to finish. And then us also affecting uh, the retailer um, journey from start to finish uh, across the different uh, employee types. I mean, we definitely got that right. Um, what we got wrong is absolutely trying to build too much, too much, trying to build up to see the sale and all that, and chasing what we thought is a shiny object, what we thought is needed to open up a vertical state like Arizona and elsewhere. Being the best of breed is still the right path, regardless of the TAM issues that exist in our space. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Having an open mind and and, and just discussing things with even your competitors early, very early on and just figuring out how to be best of breed. Like I think that would have solved a lot of our pain points. It would, would have reduced a lot of unnecessary competitors and or um, just companies in general because we're wasting very valuable uh, resources, right? Like access to capital is so difficult these days. It wasn't that difficult three, four years ago. And that's why you saw so many versions of us. At some point, I think in the cannabis space, there was like, 30 or 40 point of sale vendors across all the markets. And we're all chasing at that point five or 6,000 doors. That's just not enough to go around, right? Um, just being open-minded, having those discussions, even uh, with your competitors directly, um, that just having that open mind um, is definitely an advice I would give future versions of myself or others. Prediction time. John, sometimes negative events influence a company to take measures to improve in the future. What events could arise in the future that will draft, drastically shift cannabis companies to adopt data-based insights aggressively? I think like any drastic changes, and I don't think of it as database adoption, but I think drastic changes will still come in more of a regulatory sense. Like, are you prepped for interstate commerce? Are you prepped for some some more like payment solutions? Are you are you prepared for a variety of different tax changes that's upcoming? And they will all come. They will all surprise us, right? So those are things that uh, will influence some form of adoption, uh, negative, positively or negatively. So I, I think it's less on the database side, but I think it's just all around uh, awareness. Kellen, I would agree. I think uh, I'm going to favor kind of federal legalization, though. I think that if that domino falls, I think you're going to see just a group of more sophisticated individuals starting retail locations and people that are already operating in retail locations need to kind of either step up to the plate and increase their skill sets to compete with individuals that were, say, operating in other traditional retail spaces that it's kind of par for the course to utilize this kind of data and they have that experience already implementing it. And so I think that that is going to be a catalyst that's either going to drive people into it to, to be successful, or that you're just going to see them kind of die off. Um, what do you think, Brian? I mean, I remember some of the stores, the first store you took me into, Kellen, into Washington. I was I, thinking of that thousand, when you said so many product SKUs. Thousands <laughs> I literally of SKUs. Of that. I, I, John, I walked into the, my first dispensary with Kellen in Washington. 
five or six years ago. In Seattle, yeah. (laughs) There was thousands of products. Like it was the most products I've ever seen in my entire life. And I was just like almost shell-shocked, right? Like I couldn't get past the flower side. And Kellen's like, you don't even want this. He's like, you want that? No, you you were like, what brand? And I was like, I don't know 95% of these and I operate in Washington. (laughs) It it was madness. So in my mind, I think what it'll take is a store like that who would lose like a batch or have some inventory issues that has a massive financial loss to recognize that maybe if we get ourselves under control, we can make better financial decisions. We're not going to get you know, products that expire. We're not going to get uh, you know, worse areas here. Plus, we can double down exactly on the products that are selling faster because those are the ones you want to invest your capital in because it turns out now, it's not growth at all costs. It's figuring out what's working well and pushing towards that USP. I think I might know the exact one you visited in Washington. <laughs> they, they, they prided themselves on the Walmart model. It was, yeah. it was wild. <laughs> I, I was almost frozen. <laughs> So John, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about Trees. Where can they find you? Yeah, go to our site, trees.io, T-R-E-E-Z.io. New site, new facelift, but just more content. We have a a big dedication this year to just having good good content from our blogs from within LinkedIn, just within the social airwaves, uh, but with content that has substance, right? That's driven by data, that's driven with some trend analysis, and hopefully just being a good steward for, for this industry overall. Awesome. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.